So as we, as we do get going, I'm going to just um, make a couple of uh, observations. One, you may hear some beeping that's going on, and right outside my window, uh, outside of my office, there's a good deal of construction, which is sometimes louder than at other times, so it's a little closer, and so that might um, be slightly distra- uh, distracting. I apologize if it is. Uh, the other is that I'll note that in case you haven't checked your email in the last uh, 15 minutes or so, I did send um, a PDF with some excerpts that I'll uh, be reading and probably won't get through all of them, but um, have that to read along if you like. Did a meet last week. We took a week off. Um, and the time before that, we kind of quickly made our way through de-schooling society and it's not even really just to say that we made our way through de-schooling society. I picked some elements of it out for us to think about. And I thought that we might start with at least the last bit of, of that book this week before moving on to Tools for Conviviality, um, which I decided to spend two weeks with. And so uh, we maybe will get through about half of that book this week and then pick up with the rest of it last week. Uh, but the... The closing essay in, in Deschooling Society, it's the last chapter of the book, is called Rebirth of Epimethean Man. And essentially what, what Ilge is doing here is retelling or, or telling the story of Prometheus um, and his brother Epimetheus and their relationship to Pandora, so drawing on Greek mythology, but also to highlight the value or the importance of hope. And so I wanted to just read one element of it, uh, talk a little bit about that, and, and then ask if you have any sort of carryover questions about the book, even from our last discussion, uh, before we move on to tools for conviviality. And so he, he writes, Illich, in, in the third paragraph of this uh, closing essay, hope in its strong sense means trusting faith in the goodness of nature, while expectation, as I will use it here, means reliance on results which are planned and controlled by man. And so he opposes hope on the one hand with expectation on the other. And he says, hope centers desire on a person from whom we await a gift. Expectation looks forward to satisfaction from a predictable process which will produce what we have the right to claim. And then he goes on to say that the Promethean ethos has now eclipsed hope. And then he adds survival of the human race depends upon its its recovery or rediscovery, excuse me, that is the rediscovery of hope as a social force. Um, I, in, in my own view of Illich's work, at least let me put it this way in my reading uh, of Illich's work and, and what I draw from his work. This is one of the critical insights uh, because it, it's one way of describing two very different approaches to life, two very different approaches to how we experience the world. And one of them, and they're the way Illich labels them, hope and expectation here. Um, one other way that I sometimes talk about it is as the difference between experiencing the world fundamentally as a gift, uh, or on the other hand, as raw material uh, subject to our mastery and our, and our manipulation. And so 
this is a, uh, a distinction that I wanted to highlight and I wanted to put before you. When we think about, for instance, technology, which I tend to talk a lot about, um, there, there are a lot of different levels at which we might think about it uh, and its relationship to society, its relationship to our own um, lives, our own personal uh, habits. We might think of it at the level of, of the artifacts and tools. So a lot of talk about technology these days centers, for example, on smartphones and addiction to social media. And so these are sort of discrete um, devices and tools, some of which we literally hold in hand. Uh, one level above that, we might think of technology as systems. Um, Illich later in his work, uh, in fact, makes this a very important distinction, a distinction between instruments and systems on the other hand. In fact, um, he will later, uh, about a decade and a half after writing Tools for Conviviality and, and D-School and Society and a lot of these early books, say that um, he, he missed the mark to some degree because he failed to recognize the distinction between what he calls instruments uh, and systems on the other hand. And so systems aren't made up of uh, simply a tool. They, they are a network of tools and they include us in them. They, our perception is shaped by them. Uh, we don't just hold them in hand and, and use them and control them. Uh, to some degree, we're enmeshed in them. And so that's another level at which we want to think about uh, technology. But the third one, and, and this is just my own um, little heuristic way of thinking about this, the third one is at, a, at an even more fundamental level where we think not so much about a, a particular artifact or a particular tool, a particular device, or even technological systems, as important as those are, but of a kind of disposition that works its way into us and shapes the way that we see the world. And I, I do, it may be some people might think it was a bit of a stretch to think of technology in that way. Um, I'll say only that I'm not alone or this isn't very original of me to do it this way, to think of it this way. Um, but that I think it does get at something very important that our use of devices and tools and technologies or our enmeshment, in, in, being enmeshed in, in technological systems shape us and form us. And ultimately, I won't necessarily say that the thing that matters most, although the case could be made for that, it is not what we do with any one particular device or system, but rather who we become as a result of these systems in which we are enmeshed and these tools that we habitually use to shape and mediate our relationship with one another and with the world around us. And so what I'm driving at here is that they ingrain ways of being in the world, right? Again, fundamental dispositions to reality, ways of experiencing our own lives. Uh, and the way I typically distinguish that is between, again, um, the, the world as raw material and the world as a gift. And I think those two ways of relating to, work, to the world lead to very different kinds of actions, very different kinds of uh, reactions to things that happen to us, the world that we encounter. Um, and in this last chapter of D-School and Society, I, I see something very similar to that distinction, and especially in this relationship between, between hope, or excuse me, the distinction between hope and expectation. You'll notice that what he calls expectation here, which he, you know, further glosses as reliance on results which are planned and controlled by man. 
It, it's what we can program, what we can master, what we can control. I just read a, a book by a German sociologist called The Uncontrollability of the World. Um, it, it, it's interesting as I read it, and, and I don't think this is just because I have, you know, Illich on the brain, but it, it really read like Illich on, in another key uh, for me. But he, he elaborates this idea that the world, that the, to the degree that we try to control the world, to that same degree, we will be, we will be frustrated. Uh, we will cut off the path towards genuine sort of human satisfaction and uh, a measure of, of joy and, um, a sense of, um, fulfillment in our encounters with the world. Uh, it's a, it's a short book. It's a, you know, multiple, uh, multi-layered argument. Uh, essentially the idea is that we need things that respond to us, not in a wholly, um, how shall we put it, um, chaotic way, not in a wholly unpredictable way, but not in a way that we can fully control either. And in our desire to control the world, uh, in the, in the creation of tools whose aim is to control the world, uh, the world around us are the circumstances that we encounter. We are paradoxically causing the world to fall silent, uh, to, we're reducing it to something inert and that, and thus unresponsive. Uh, and for that very reason, we lack the satisfactions that we crave. And so that there's a kind of paradoxical, um, tragically paradoxical aspect to our quest, our desire to control and to manipulate and to, and to program reality, uh, as it were. And that is that we are at the same time undermining uh, the very conditions of human flourishing, of, of, of human satisfaction in the world as it's been given to us. But I think, again, there there is this idea that the way to, to happiness, the way to um, the best way to make our way in the world is to control it and to develop technologies that help us to control it, to manage it. And I think if we're well, let me just say when I am self-reflective about some of the choices that I make very often, you know, I find that one of the underlying maybe just below the level of consciousness motivations is my desire to control and manipulate situations. Uh, one very prosaic aspect of this um, is the degree to which uh, people have become sort of allergic of actual phone calls. Um, so yeah, one reason for this, of course, is that, you know, nine out of every 10 phone calls you get are spam at this point. Uh, but also the there's something unpredictable and uncontrollable about the sort of live vocal encounter with someone else, right? The text message we can control. The email we can control. We have time to respond, to think through what we want to say. But there's something almost a little dangerous about the phone call by comparison. Um, and again, this may just be me, but I, I, well, I don't think it's just me, but it may not be you. Um, but we, we retreat to the relative safety of the, of the asynchronous text message because it, uh, it allows us a measure of control over this you know, really fundamentally human interaction. Um, and, and to this degree, uh, I think we can, in this way, I think we can, we can isolate other types of decisions and choices that we make and tools that are created in order to measure, to predict, to manage uh, all aspects of our existence. And increasingly, 
digital technologies make it increasingly easy to at least have the illusion uh, that we are properly measuring and managing. Um, metrics are generated for all sorts of human activities, for the um, status of your body at any given moment. Um, and these, again, have this paradoxical effect of generating the, the, the kind of anxiety that they are ostensibly uh, designed to alleviate. Um, the, the more you measure something, the more you, can set, you become self-aware of it. And so in your effort to control and manage, you are um, hijacking a, a, a relationship that, um, hijacking is not the best word, but you're, you're, you're creating a new mode of relation to this thing, whether it be your own body, uh, your social relations. Uh, as a parent, I think of this in terms of children, uh, how we seek to, as, as parents, because we want our children to be safe, you may know this uh, from, you know, the other end of the kind of parental relationship, right? The more we, we want to control and assure that our children are safe, um, the more we risk uh, generating anxiety in us and in them simultaneously. And then I think about all of the tools that have been generated in just the past few years uh, to monitor, constantly monitor uh, an infant's body temperature, breathing rate, and and that just sort of multiplies all the way through to the tools that are meant to sort of monitor the online activities of, of children, to track them when they're in their vehicles. Uh, and and it's again, it comes out of um it comes out of I think the, the belief that in our ability to control and measure and monitor and surveil, something good lies on the other end of that. Uh but in in each of those cases. I think what we're failing to do is to receive these things as gifts that have their own integrity, uh, that have, in a sense, um, a kind of, there is a risk involved. There's a danger involved uh, and an unpredictability. Uh, and we, I guess, have the choice either to embrace that uh, and to live within the constraints of, of those realities uh, or else to seek to manage them and exclude the risk um, to the greatest degree possible through the tools that allow us to do that. But the, the consequences, I think, are, are quite steep. So that's a, that, that's a, a bit of a discussion of this, of this chapter, more of a riff on it, uh, to elaborate on some ways that I tend to think about this, uh, distinction and, and how it manifests itself in our own, um, actions. So I'll, I'll stop there. And again, I, hopefully, a lot of this is just a way of sort of inducing you to, to read more village on your own at some point. Um, but having stopped there and before transitioning uh, to tools for conviviality, let me pause and ask if you have any questions about any of, of what I've just talked about here or anything that kind of germinated in your own thinking over the last couple of weeks um, from our previous discussion of de-schooling society. Um, so that came to mind when you were talking about comparing the our reaction to a phone call and our reaction to a text. Um, so uh, there's a, actually, and I realize that this theme kind of goes throughout what you were saying, but um, with the, how hope is with uh, trust and with a sort of danger, um, there's also this embodiment or engagement aspect. And I noticed it particularly with the phone text because uh, that just triggered my memory from when in the past. So I don't really, I'm not a big texting person. 
Um, if you text me, unless it's important, I'll probably get back to you within an hour or two. Um, but I, I had a friend back in middle school who loved texting. I asked, why do you like texting? Why don't you, wouldn't you rather call on the phone? And she told me it's less personal. Um, and so what I made a connection that, um, in the control that we have over text messages, we basically removed ourselves from it. Um, in the sense that we're removing the emotional engagement and that embodiment aspect of being present with someone. Um, and so I think it's weird that that's maybe that's what makes it feel safer is that, um, it's like, yes, we can control it, but it's, it's like, it's almost like control another level of control on a relationship and in order so that we're not as emotionally engaged, but that also lessens the relationship in a sense that we're less emotionally engaged. And I just thought that that, that struck me um, when you were talking about phone calls. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good example of that. Thank you. Any other comments or questions about de-school in society or any of this last uh, discussion? Okay, let's move on then to talk about Tools for Conviviality, which is published a couple of years after, uh, two or three years after de-schooling society. And essentially what I think Illich is trying to do in this book is, is map out the possibility uh, not in terms of like specific policies, but map out the possibility of a, what he will call using these sort of technical terms, a convivial post-industrial society. Uh, and so if, and, and in his view, this will be necessary for industrial societies. This is in 1973 that he publishes this book. And so it will be necessary for industrial societies, uh, to, to make their way towards something different than other than what they have been and and it'll be necessary because of the the realization the recognition of the damage that this mode of production will do that the the that the dominance of this mode of production will have done to society and to into nature uh, and then also in his view as a way of, of maybe preempting the industrialization of parts of the globe that have not yet experienced it so that they can in a sense skip over that process and arrive at something better and so it's an attempt to get map, map a, a path towards a post-industrial society central to, uh, Illich's argument is this idea of conviviality. Um, it, it can, and, and it's convivial tools, convivial, um, institutions and convivial societies. It's, it's a word we'll take a moment and I've pulled some excerpts here that will, you know, try to uh, describe and, and fill out the term. And then I also wanted to mention one sort of overarching theme that I read in this book. And it should work more broadly, but especially in this book. And that is that there is a, a desire to see part of what's at the heart of conviviality and the opposition or the critique of industrial tools by which he includes what we typically think of as technologies, but also institutions. Um, it's a desire to preserve or defend individual freedom or individual autonomy from the the strictures of 
industrial institutions that dictate to people how they must act and what they must do and how they must use the, the resources or that else otherwise generate desires for their wares, their, their products, their outputs. Um, but it's, it's individual freedom that then is also inseparable from personal interdependence. And, and these are words that Illich uses. At one point, I think he, he talks specifically about individualized freedom realized in interpersonal, or excuse me, in personal interdependence. And so one way of thinking about this broader picture, this broader uh, point that runs throughout the book, is that one of the problems with, with these institutions that Illich was cr- criticizing is that they reduce our ability to care for ourselves, to provide for ourselves, uh, to dictate the terms of our own work, uh, to to plot out the particular paths that we want to follow with our lives. In other words, they reduce individual autonomy. But, but a consequence of that is that we also lose the capacity uh, or the means by which we might care for one another. And so I, it seems to me that, that there's a tendency, um, I described uh, uh, one of the talks that I gave recently in, in part of the blurb that I wrote for it. I, I talked about Illich as someone who has been called a, a socialist, a radical, a, a radical traditionalist, uh, and a libertarian. And now in our sort of map of, of, of political and economic um, positions, most of those things are kind of mutually exclusive. Um, I forgot anarchists as well. Um, but but what, what did strike me is that there are some libertarian thinkers that find a lot to like in Illich's work. Um, one of the places where I, I've stumbled upon tributes to Illich um, are in very, you know, very specifically libertarian websites. And so there's a strand, but but it is always coupled with a concern for mutual interdependence, right? For mutual care. And so it is not simply a matter of becoming autonomous so that then we can pursue our own desires for their own sake in a, in a sort of um, in a selfishly individualistic manner, right? As if we are little atoms and we're, we're best when we are able to detach ourselves from our communities. Rather, it's that we might then be able to, to better integrate into, I would call human scale communities, uh, our families, our neighborhoods, um, smaller uh, scaled associations that we might enter into, and that through these, we contribute to the well-being of others. We care for others. We provide for others. Um, instead of all of us individually becoming dependent upon other institutions to do this caring for us. Um, so that's, that's a, I think, an important theme that runs throughout, a thread that runs throughout this work. And I wanted to highlight that before we read some of these specific um, passages from from convivial or excuse me from tools for conviviality, so having said that, I've, I've brought up here uh, these excerpts, and I want to walk through some of these and talk a little bit about them and, and use them as uh, kind of gateways into into Illich's argument here. And so the first one comes from the introduction, and he says, "I here submit the concept of a multi-dimensional balance of human life." multidimensional balance of human life, which can serve as a framework for evaluating man's relation to his tools, 
In each of several dimensions of this balance, it is possible to identify a natural scale. And then he goes on, he says, so thus far, the, the key point here is that he wants us to look at human life as involving various dimensions that are balanced in, in one way or another, right? And, and that in each of these, um, in each of these several dimensions of this balance, it is possible in his view to find a scale, a natural scale. And, and then he goes on, he says, when an enterprise grows beyond a certain point on this scale, it first frustrates the end for which it was originally designed and then rapidly becomes a threat to society itself. These scales must be identified and the parameters of human endeavors within which human life remains viable must be explored. So this is, I think, a, one, of, one of his critical insights, one of his most valuable and helpful to me, uh, most helpful insights. So one of the things that, you know, we, if, if we talk about technology and sort of the limits of technology, or we offer some critique of contemporary technology, um, there is, there is often this kind of rejoinder or this, um, pushback that suggests that technology is something we buy into in a kind of all or nothing sort of way, right? And that, that if we accept any bit of it at all, then we have to allow it to just run its course, regardless of where it ends up. And what Illich is suggesting here is that this is not the best way of thinking about things. And so he opens uh, the book with uh, a chapter called Two Watersheds uh, or Two um, Sort of thresholds that are passed or two points on the scale that are passed in the case of medicine. Now, it's striking to me that, you know, when there are some critics of modernity that, you know, sort of target the, the, uh, the low hanging fruit, as it were, right? The things that many of us could, could agree are, are problems with modernity, um, environmental degradation, for example. And, and Illich, certainly has, you know, something to say about that, but, but he targets these two institutions, uh, that most people, even if they have some criticism of the modern world would say, you know, these are the, the good aspects of it. And that is, of course, the school and, and then medicine. Limits of medicine comes after, um, tools for conviviality, but this first chapter sort of anticipates the argument that he makes in that. Uh, and what he suggests is that there are these two watersheds in the history of medicine in the West. Within, he says, within his own lifetime. I forget the precise dates. I think it's 1911 and somewhere in the 1950s, 1953. Um, and, and he says these dates are, are, are a little arbitrary, but you, you know, we can quibble about them. But essentially his point is this. You have these advances in the early 20th century that do in fact generate genuine improvements in the human condition, right? Generally, um, uh, they, they serve the benefit of human beings, improve the health of human beings, uh, extend the lifespan of human beings. Uh, some of these uh, are some very simple um, realizations or discoveries. Uh, the use of soap, the value of clean water, um, and in certain kinds of antibiotics, um, quinine as a treatment for malaria is another one that he names. And, and what each of these sort of has in, in common is that they, they are, they're effective uh, they're relatively easy to administer. 
they don't require a great deal of expertise necessarily, right? But they have these market, they, they lead to market improvements in human health. And then in, in the 1950s, by his uh, reckoning, you cross a second threshold where in, in his view, medicine becomes the institution of medicine in the West becomes self-defeating, right? It, it passes the scale where its gains uh, are now being reversed or it's frustrating the ends towards which it was originally designed. Uh, and he points to the variety of illnesses that are sort of induced by the practice of medicine itself. Um, these, I think, are now widely recognized, but at the time uh, that Illich was writing, I don't know that how widely, in fact, they were acknowledged. Um, the fact that you are likely, uh, in, in some cases, more likely to end up sick, sicker in a hospital than out of it, uh, for example. But it's the, the professionalization, the institutionalization of care itself, the outsourcing of, uh, of, of our care for our, our families to professionals um, in a way that mitigates our ability to, to care for ourselves and turns uh, this kind of care for, for our health into a commodity. Uh, and then it generates inequality of outcomes, et cetera. And so there's this idea then that you, you pass a threshold when something that was good, right? And so n- nowhere does Illich say, you know, medicine per se is bad, right? But rather that there is a way of practicing medicine. There's, there's a, there was a trajectory in Western medicine that generated conditions that then reversed the gains or otherwise began to undermine the ostensible aims of medicine. And he says the same is true in, in any number of spheres in the modern world. Uh, I, cars is another helpful example. Transportation, he, he writes a great deal about transportation as well, um, in, especially in, in a book called Energy and Equity. Right, but this is an easy one for us, I think, to wrap our heads around. So when you first get uh, when the, when the automobile, automobiles first developed, right, it gives you this promise of going very quickly from point to point, right? It increases the efficiency within which someone can traverse uh, uh, a set number of miles, even if at first, you know, by our standards, you know, the speed is relatively low, 30 miles or 40 miles an hour, right? Um, but what ends up happening is that the, the more cars you create, you, the, the more widely, uh, saturated, uh, and throughout society automobiles become, the more congestion you get, right? The more traffic and, and you allow places to be built out, right? So that in certain major urban areas in the United States, it's not uncommon for people to drive an hour or two hours. Uh, that's their commute to get into work, right? Suburbs begin to sprawl out away from uh, urban centers. And so you you increase the distances that people are able to traverse because the automobile has made that possible. And you create congestion and traffic. Um, and so what has ended up happening is that this device or tool that ostensibly was designed to get you from point A to point B faster now no longer gets you there faster. In fact, you may now be taking longer relative to a, a kind of pre-automobile situation to get from point A to point B. And there are other issues that, that Illich points out uh, are involved here. But the idea is, again, this, this notion of a, of a tipping point, if you will, where something that has some kind of ostensible benefit at the outset 
if it grows to a certain scale, if it crosses some threshold, then it flips over into something that becomes counterproductive. And and Illich's point here was simply to say, these scales need to be identified. And later on in the book, and and so we'll talk more about it last uh, next week, he talks about counterfoil research. In other words, this is, in his view, research not simply to make more and better and faster technologies, but rather to identify where these tipping points are, where what these scales are. And they will vary from institution to institution or from industry to industry. Uh, and so it, it requires a measure of, of, uh, of research and understanding in order to recognize where they may be. I think one, you know, contemporary example of this is something like Facebook. Right, so Facebook um, famously uh, is, is driven by the ideology of connection. Right, um, in in the in the worldview that Facebook embodies, connecting people is an unalloyed good. Right, in other words, it must be pursued at all costs. The more people you connect, the better. Connecting people is good. Period. Right, and so they are driven by the desire to bring more and more people. Obviously, there are also economic factors in play here, right? But but there is, I think, this um, genuinely held belief that that more connection is always better. And so it, it seems pretty evident to me, and maybe to some of you as well, that once that crossed a, thir- a certain threshold, it began generating all sorts of social and interpersonal disorders, right? Because there, there was a scale, and... That scale, whatever scale we might have identified, is appropriate for uh, for human connectivity, say, right? The the ways in which people can be connected, the number of people to be connected with, um, that scale was was passed, and so the the value of connecting people began at, at least as often generating social and interpersonal disorders. Right? So I think this is a very valuable analytic tool, right? This idea that Things aren't just good or bad, right? They exist on a kind of spectrum. The tools, technologies, institutions aren't just good or bad. They exist, they exist on a kind of spectrum. And that there are natural limits and scales and thresholds. And that there is a point at which institutions or technologies or tools pass some tipping point whereby first they become, again, sort of counterproductive and then ultimately just socially destructive. Um, so I wanted to make sure to get that point on the table, especially at the outset here, and to to drive that one home, because I think that's a very useful uh, notion. So let me pause there and ask if you have any um, questions about the concept, about the idea that that Ilge is driving at here, uh, or any other kind of comments based on your own um, experience related to this. It seems like we identified the tipping points only by going over the edge. That's at least how it's been, you know, yes, more often than not, that is what has happened. Uh, and, and so what Illich here in 1973 is recommending is that maybe we ought to get ahead of the curve, uh, instead, right? Uh, maybe we ought to try to discover what these might be before we cross them, uh, and, and then are just sort of learning by virtue of, of the, the tragedies or, um, the degradation or the social disintegration that is resulted. Yeah.
which, mind you, it, it, no one I think would say this is an easy thing to do. Um, and, and and there's also this further question of how do you mobilize? Who gets to mobilize that understanding, uh, or or who gets to sort of decide where that threshold is? Right. And so there's also, and, it, and this kind of runs through this, this book as well. There's also a political question, um, about how these tools are governed and where, who gets to set these, um, these ceilings. Uh, it, we'll use the word ceilings on a handful of occasions. So they're, we're often very concerned with, with minimums, right? The bare minimum of something, a uh, bare minimum requirement, but Illich wants us to also think about these ceilings where, you know, we ought not to go beyond this level. Um, and so the, the question again of, of who decides, who recognizes these, who implements them, how they are enforced, I think is, a, is obviously a, a, a critical question. And, and there are a couple of uh, little excerpts here that, that'll kind of touch on that. Actually, so this reminds me of, um, of a discussion. It wasn't really a discussion actually, but in genetics when I was an, an undergrad. Um, and I had this discussion with my own students later on. Um, about the slippery slope argument uh, in mm-hmm. gene editing. Um, and so for those of you who don't know, uh, we are developing the capacity to uh, edit whole genomes. And the whole the genome is like the part of the entire DNA as it is. Um, and so that's a very powerful thing to do. And there are some fears like, oh, what if we go out and start making designer babies? Um, and what social structures could um, form because of that? Uh, but an argument in my genetics class, uh, I went to a Christian school and the professor basically said, Christians usually oppose this because they form a slippery, slippery slope argument of us playing God. How far are we going? What's too far? And he pretty much argued that the slippery slope argument has always been argued for. Um, and if we're worried about gene editing, well, we've, um, we bred domestic dogs. We, have cattle and chicken that are bred for us is, is that not playing God as well? Um, but I, I never liked his dismissal by saying his dismissal of the slippery slope argument. Um, by he's basically trying to get past the point of like, we're not necessarily playing God. We're just, um, using what God has given us is in, as we have done in the past and manipulating genetics, just doing it in a different way. But I do think I never really liked him dismissing slippery slope altogether because there is a stopping point where you have to ask what matters. Uh, And even with things like genes, then you have to, if you're really editing those, you can start asking, well, what's even human? It doesn't matter what your DNA is. Um, Things like that. Right. Yeah, and I, and I think you're right to be, um, you know, suspicious of, of that dismissal. Um, there are slippery slopes, uh, and, and I, you know, I think they play out. One of the issues here, I think, is that we just sort of name these logical fallacies and just sort of drop these names on different arguments we don't like instead of thinking more rigor, rigorously about them. Um, and, and again, this is, um, it's a kind of trope in thinking about technology, right? It, it involves this idea that, well, we humans have always used technology. We've always been tool users. Um, and, and so it is almost used to justify the idea that we will, we are always just doing what has always been a human activity. 
Um, and it's often kind of paired with this idea, much like you discussed, David, of, you know, where would you have liked to have stopped the line, you know, uh, right before or right after antibiotics, uh, or, or something like that, right? Which is meant to be a sort of, um, case closing dismissive, uh, comment. Uh, but I, but I think it is evident that there are these limits, but it is, I think, a genuine question as to where are they? How are they decided? What normative, um, structures uh, do we rely on in order to decide where these thresholds are? Um, and of course, for, for Illich, it's going to be very, very closely tied to this question of conviviality, to the value of personal autonomy, uh, generating um, interpersonal, or excuse me, uh, personal interdependence. Um, but you're absolutely right to say these, these become very thorny issues. And um, departing slightly from Illich, in, 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 you know, I've you know, often argued that they become extremely hard um, the the more the technology is scaled up, right? So it's one thing for the Amish to deliberate about the tools that they will introduce into their communities, right? And they have political structures within their community to do this. Uh, it's another thing for New York City to decide the same. It's another thing still for the United States to decide the same thing. And it's another thing still for, for the global political community to decide this, right? And so it's this... The question of the, the, the larger the impact, the harder it becomes to achieve something like what we might think of as democratic consensus about the management of, of this tool or this, um, technology or this technique, which puts us in a bad place, I think. And to be clear, gene editing, like there are good aspects to it too, primarily in uh, gene therapy where there are genetic disorders and the hope of using it is that you could like, help people out with that. Um, yeah, I'm done talking. Yeah, well, and, and I think sometimes maybe what I feel, you know, sort of Illich pushing me to consider, because there's always this sort of this thing, well, there are these good uses, right? And this is not to, to dismiss that, David, but it's just to kind of maybe push this a little bit further. Um, I suppose it, it raises this question of, of what are some of these uh, putative advantages that we might be willing to reject or do without for the sake of not also introducing the, the negative consequences that arise from them, right? And I, and I think um, Illich in this book is fairly clear that there are sacrifices entailed, right? That there are, there, there will be this need to, uh, this is my language, to reorder our desires, um, to to maybe in, in language closer to, to what Illich would certainly uh, moving forward use uh, to reconsider our needs, right? And, and what they are um, and, and, and where we're willing to trade um, a measure of affluence for a measure of, of freedom and personal satisfaction and joy, genuine joy, right? Um, and I think this is partially why he does move from these early works, uh, tools and energy and equity, and, and I think probably even limits of medicine, to then saying, well, I need to think deeper about this, right? Because you, he offers this critique. Um, as I read it, even to the degree that I agree with it, you know, I also recognize the degree to which it's fairly implausible in, in our present social conditions to move in the direction I think he wants to move, at least at, at a, at, you know, at scale. Um, 
because there's something else going on, right? There, there are desires. There are our sense of what we need. There's something that's happened at the level of, of Western assumptions and even perception, uh, that I think it became vital for Illich to then try to understand. And, and we'll, I mean, we'll move to that part of Illich's career in the next uh, few weeks, but, um, yes, all, all of these good, good observations. Um, so we have ten minutes, nine minutes to go, and, and one uh, quote down. Um, <laughs> let me very briefly read the next one. Um, this it is related to the first, and so I'll just kind of put it on the table and then move on. Um, he's writing this in 1973. Um, if you remember uh, your American history, anyway, um, the Vietnam War is in its, its sort of tail stages, its final stages, uh, and during the Vietnam War, the language of escalation um, became uh, very common in public discourse, right, of escalating the American presence, the American involvement, uh, bombing campaigns, et cetera. Uh, and so that that image of escalation, I think, looms pretty large uh, in this book. And so here in, early on, he says, the characteristic reaction of the 60s to the growing frustration, and what he had identified was already in the 1950s, a, a growing frustration which with the character of a highly industrialized society. Um, he says that the reaction of the 60s was further technological and bureaucratic escalation. Um, self-defeating escalation of power became the core ritual practiced in a highly industrial, in highly industrialized nations. While evidence shows that more of the same leads to utter defeat, nothing less than more and more seems worthwhile in a society infected by the growth mania. The desperate plea is not only for more bombs and more police, more medical examinations and more teachers, but also for more information and research. And then he, a little further on, says the cure for bad management is more management. The cure for specialized research is more costly interdisciplinary research, just as the cure for polluted rivers is more costly non-polluting detergents. The pooling of stores of information, the building up of a knowledge stock, the attempt to overwhelm present problems by the introduction of more science is the ultimate attempt to solve a crisis by escalation. And I, and I, again, I, I throw this out here. I, I highlight this particular passage because I think this is still evident in, in our society, right? That this impulse, when there is a problem, to simply say we need more of the same, Right, that we don't have enough of whatever was causing the problem. And, and this can be seen in, in I think, multiple dimensions of, uh, of our society. When something is failing, the idea is to throw more money at it, right? Um, when we, when an institution is failing, well, we need more of the practitioners of the specialty that this institution offers us. Um, there is, there's this impulse to say that a, a, a problem's created by a certain institution or discipline or tool requires more of the same. The, the impulse is never to say, maybe we need to ratchet down, right? Maybe we need to de-escalate. Uh, maybe we need to reconsider the idea of limits, right? That very rarely becomes uh, the option. Now, I, I think increasingly there are, there are pockets of voices that will say this, but I, I don't know that I think there's still minority opinions um, by, in large measure, right? but that our impulse is always to escalate. And I think this remains true today. Um, now, let me read. Uh, uh, I'll just highlight maybe a couple more um, paragraphs here before we close. Um, I'm trying to 
see which one might be a good one for us to end on today. Um, let me read the, the first quote on the second page. And, and this, I think, might be a good provocative one for us to, to close on today. He says that, I, I argue that survival injustice is possible only at the cost of those sacrifices implicit in the adoption of a convivial mode of production as opposed to an industrial one. And the universal renunciation of unlimited progeny, affluence, and power on the part of both individuals and groups. This price cannot be extorted uh, by some despotic leviathan or, or tyrannical government, nor elicited by social engineering, um, or what you know today we're more likely to hear referred to as nudging. People will rediscover the value of joyful sobriety and liberating austerity only if they relearn to depend on each other rather than on what he calls energy slaves. And, and I should explain here that what he means by energy slaves are tools, devices, institutions that are conceived of as a way of alleviating human beings of, of the need to work, right? So mechanized slaves, technology as replacement for slaves. Um, and that's a point I'll definitely develop more next week. Um, but but again, I, here is this call, not only to sort of tweak uh, aspects of how we live our lives uh, or to kind of fiddle at the margins of our consumerist habits. It, it is, again, a kind of call to change your life, right? To, to rediscover a different way of, of reaching for happiness other than the way that dominates present uh, certainly American culture, right? Where the answer is always one more commodity, one more experience, one more service that you need, uh, that you need to accumulate more money in order to achieve or to purchase. Uh, and that leads, leads us obviously burnt out, exhausted, unhappy, anxious, depressed. And yet thinking all the while that what we need is just a little more of whatever it is that we're seeking for in order to be happy. Uh, and I think what I hear Illich saying is that that whole approach needs to be re- rethought that that maybe you would be happier with less relative affluence um, and that that our society would be a healthier society personally and and at the at the, at the sort of communal level uh, if we totally rethought these implicit um, ends that we pursue uh, without knowing without recognizing. The, again, the, the kind of paradoxical quality of them, that is that they undermine the very thing that we think we're trying to, to get at when we pursue them. So I'll, there's more to unpack here, obviously, and, and who knows, maybe we'll do three weeks of tools for conviviality, but um, any closing thoughts or comments before we wrap up for today or questions? It seems like much of the, uh, uh, decision-making falls on this cost-benefit calculation. And uh, that's always seemed to be a, a kind of an unfair approach to making decisions when some aspects of the calculation are easily put into monetary terms and others are not. And we end up with um, economics ruling the day. And yeah. I feel as though 
we've we've not been able to place appropriate values on intangible things, uh, right. uncommodifiable things. Yes, and we only learn about their values after we've gone too far and we can't right. get them back. Right, right. No, well put. Exactly right. Uh, in, in a um, in a sort of liberal democratic order that has already pushed off the the question of the human good or the good itself as something that is private rather than public, um, where we don't even, we don't have a vocabulary for, for, a, for the good any longer, publicly available vocabulary for the good. The only lingua franca of the public square is quantification. Uh, what can be quantified and measured? And, and certainly I think the bottom line is, no pun intended, uh, what what can be fi- monetized, right? Financially quantified, and so any any goods that are not susceptible to quantification or even or, or even further to monetization uh, disappear from these sorts of of debates or analysis, uh, because there's no common language or even a sort of common narratives by which we might have genuine. Um, a public debate about about those matters, right? So those all get whatever we cannot measure, we cannot adequately value and thus defend. Right? Yeah. At least that's my grim view of the, of the, the state of affairs. Well, I mean, when they do my public administration course, right? I forget exactly how it worked, but you assign a monetary value to like a year of life or to a human life in order that you can correctly make a budget, you know? Yeah. And it's like, oh right. man, how yeah. Yeah. awful that is. Yeah. Right. Okay. On that cheery note, um, <laughs> I will I'll wrap up today um, and um, we will pick up next week uh, with some of these excerpts here and I may have some others for us. Thank you all for, for joining in. And I, and I hope um, not that you leave with any answers, but that's certainly more questions than with what we began. So uh, have a great week and we'll see you next next time at the same time.